Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And it says, Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We are so short-staffed that I have to carry my own table. I was complaining about it pre-service, and they told me to get over myself, so now I'm over it. Uh, it is good to be here, guys. We are so thankful for the opportunity to worship together. If you have a Bible with you, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab that. Turn to the passage Lindsay just read, Luke chapter 9. If you ever need a Bible if you didn't bring one with you, if you don't own one, they're always available on the way in. Please take one with you. Find it on your phone, whatever it takes to follow along, because we are in a study that is taking us all the way through the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And we, this is going to carry us through the end of the summer. Um, and so we've got a bit of time here, and we're really excited to see the story unfold before our eyes. And we have two clear goals in mind. The first is which, what Luke wrote his gospel so that we could know with confidence. That's the Greek word, we've said it a million times, epigonosko, that you would know intellectually and experientially that the things that we've heard about Jesus are true. So if you grew up around faith, or if you're just trying to figure out faith, or you're trying to make your way back to faith, or you really, really love God, this is just, a, it's a story that edifies us and reminds us that the things we've heard about Jesus are true, that they were not cleverly devised myths, as we'll see. And then, as we put our hope and our trust in Jesus, that we could follow him in whatever direction he chooses to lead us in life. So we're going to read a story from Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 28. And this is one of those stories. This is one of those events in Jesus' life that I have heard read a hundred times. But to be completely honest, I didn't really know what to do with this story. It's the story of Jesus' transfiguration. And I didn't really know what it meant or what application it had for our life. But this week, as I spent the week studying the passage and praying through it, there is so much into this. So if you'll stick with me for the next 45 or 50 minutes, we will see it all unfold before our eyes. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, it says this. It says, now about eight days after these sayings. All right, so let's just stop right there. Um, Eight days after these things, Luke wrote this story in chronological order. And he wanted to lay the story of Jesus out in a way that was clearly uh, easy, easily able to be... Un 
excuse me, able to be easily understood. And so he laid out in chronological order. And so what Luke is doing is he's connecting for the reader uh, what's about to unfold before our eyes today and what happened last week, literally for us and for them, that last week Jesus had his disciples together and he told them for the very first time that he was going to be crucified. This guy that they had followed for almost three years, two and a half years at this point, that they put all their trust and their hope, they had left their life behind, they'd watched him perform miracles, they'd heard him teach, they'd seen the crowds gather, he gathered his disciples, together and he told them, man, I am going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, the chief priests and the elders and the religious people that look like they should be on my side, they are going to crucify me. And then I'm going to be raised from the dead. And then he said, and if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to die too. Was he speaking physically? Maybe more than, more than likely he was saying, if you're going to follow after a crucified savior, you have to be willing to die to yourself, to live life the way God calls us to live. And there's so much more to that. But eight days have passed before the story picks up in this paragraph. Can you imagine the conversations that took place among Jesus' disciples over the course of those eight days? I mean, we read these little paragraphs like they're uh, episodes in a story, and we forget that these are real people. Like they had just heard Jesus say that he was going to be crucified. He was going to be raised from the dead. I don't think they clearly didn't fully understand that. And if, if they wanted to be able to follow him, they would have to be willing to die too. I can only imagine the conversations that took place among those 12 guys over the course of those eight days. Now, you, most of you know our little daughter. She's just over two years old. And she's beginning to grasp like different concepts and ideas, and her memory amazes me. So like I made the mistake the other day when we were waking her up, I was getting her up from bed early in the morning. Uh, the nanny was going to come and watch her during the day while Chris and I worked, and we had some fun things to do that evening. We were going to take Brighton over to Grandma's house, which is like the most fun thing for a two-year-old. And so I was getting her out of bed, and I was like, we're, gonna, we're going to go to Grandma's house tonight. And all day, that's all she talked about. Nanny had to come. She didn't want the nanny to be there. Uh, we had, you know, had to eat lunch and do nap time and take a bath and all of these things. But all day, she kept coming up to me when I was trying to work. I'm like, Daddy, when are we going to Grandma's house? And then asking different things. Are Callie and Emery, her cousins, going to be there? Are, are we going to play while we're there? Is Grandpa going to be there? Are they going to let me watch TV? And then she spilled the beans that they feed her sugar. Like she said, gummies? And I was like, oh, no. I say that because... She asks all of these questions all the time about curi- out of curiosity when we tell her where she's going to go. Jesus said, I'm going to a cross. I can only imagine the anxiety and the fear and the confusion that motivated these disciples over the course of a week to say, Jesus, what did you mean by a cross? Like, what's it really going to be like? It wasn't just like Jesus said, I'm going to die on a cross. And like, oh, okay, sounds good. And they just continue following him, asking the questions, is it really necessary? Do you really have to die on a cross? What did you mean when you said we would have to die too? And then you mentioned something about rising from the dead. What's that going to be like? So what does Jesus do? He doesn't answer all their questions. It says about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. I just find that so fascinating. Jesus is praying again. He was just praying last week. Seems like every time we zoom in, we see Jesus stepping away to pray. And I think what I'm realizing is that the most powerful moments in life, in our life and in Jesus' life, are often, if not always, preceded by the most prayerful moments in life. And Jesus knew that if he was going to follow God and live the life that God had called him to live, if he was going to follow through on his promise to be crucified on a cross, to be buried in a tomb, to be raised from the dead, he would have to retreat regularly to spend time in the presence of the Father in prayer. 
And that's exactly what prayer is. It is time in God's presence. When you think about prayer, what do you think about? Like the first thing that comes to mind, is it like the prayer you learned as a kid before mealtime, that routine prayer we said over and over? Hopefully you've outgrown that prayer by now. But maybe when you think of prayer, you still think of mealtime prayer, a, a quick moment to step away and tell God all the things you're grateful for. Those, those are true. And talking to God is prayer. But I think prayer, as I learn more about who God is, I realize that prayer is time we spend in God's presence. And so when I talk about my prayer time, just to let you in on and what God is teaching me, this is how I pray. I pray first thing every morning. I always say it's between my first and my second cup of coffee because the Holy Spirit is just so much more clear when I have coffee. Um, but I, I go as often as I can to the back porch or the front porch. I try to get outside to step away because my entire life is lived indoors. And I always go to pray with a Bible, a journal, a pencil, a highlighter, and a cup of coffee. And all of that time is my prayer time. It's time I sit in God's presence. And my routine, I'm not saying you have to copy this, but my routine is I always say a very short prayer at first. I just thank God for who he is and some of the blessings that I know that he has provided. I ask him to speak as I listen, and then I read the scripture. And I, I'm learning that a really effective prayer time often means I spend more time listening than I do speaking. Like when I think about prayer growing up, it's always like, man, I just go and I tell God all the things I want as if God doesn't already know. Those are important. And God invites us into his presence and he bends his ear to hear our every prayer. But God speaks to us through his word in that prayer time. It's, it's nearly a conversation. As I offer my prayers to God, he speaks through his word. And often the most powerful moments in life are preceded by the most prayerful moments of life. The first application question I would take away from this text is like, what does your prayer life look like? I mean, Jesus was God, and he constantly withdraws by himself, steps away to spend time in the presence of the Father, seeking the Father's power, the Father's direction, the Father's presence in his life. Is your prayer time, is it consistent? Are you committed to it? Be focused. Is it marked more by telling God what you want him to do or listening to the direction that he's leading you? Jesus was committed to consistent prayer time as he strived to follow God. But then what's so fascinating in this text, all the time he's trying to get away. So far, every time Jesus withdraws, he's always trying to withdraw by himself. But here, Jesus takes people with him. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. I find that so fascinating because that at its core is discipleship. Take someone with you to let them see what God is doing and how you interact with God. And so here Jesus, he has these 12 disciples, right? These 12 followers that follow him and are spending every day with him and they're eating what Jesus eats and they're watching him perform miracles and they're listening to him teach. But here he withdraws and he takes three guys with him, Peter, James, and John, the same three that seem to go with him to see the miracles up, up close. Like when he heals Jairus' daughter, it's Peter, James, and John that are there. Jesus is constantly withdrawing with these three disciples. And commentators pretty much have concluded that he takes Peter, James, and John with him because they are his favorites, right? And, and then like that kind of rubs us the wrong way because can Jesus really pick favorites? And we have to step back and realize that um, fairness, like that doesn't seem fair. Fairness is not a biblical value, right? Like the king of kings can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. And so I know that rubs up against us. It rubs up against me, but nonetheless, maybe Peter, James, and John were his favorite. But I want to suggest something, and I don't know if this is true. Maybe 
Peter, James, and John weren't just his favorites. Maybe they were the most frustrating disciples. Did you ever think about that? Because when he steps away, he leaves the other nine disciples. And I don't know what he leaves them there to do, whether to you know, write down some of his teachings or to record a new worship song or something like that. But maybe he doesn't trust Peter, James, and John. Like Matthew and Thomas, like they're not going to get into too much trouble. But every time we see Peter, James, and John, they're always getting into trouble. I mean, Peter is going to put his foot in his mouth in this very passage twice, right? In, in John... Like, if you grew up in church, you're thinking, that can't be true, because John is the one whom Jesus loved. According to who? John. We only read that nickname in John's gospel. And I don't know, like, I don't think you can give yourself a nickname. If, if you can, let me know, because I've got some really cool nicknames for myself. Um, but world's greatest pastor, all kinds of things. But John says that, but just short, short order from this passage, J- James and John, these brothers, they're going to send their mom to Jesus to do the dirty work of asking for a seat of honor in the kingdom to come. And so, like, there's this thought in the back of my mind. Yeah, maybe Peter, James, and John were the most, the favorite disciples, but there's a good chance that they're the most frustrating ones. And he knows, like, if I go up on this mountain to pray and spend time with God, and I leave Peter, James, and John with those disciples, they're going to get into some trouble. And so he takes them with them, and he takes them up on the mount. And one of the things we realize is that these disciples, as, the, as perplexing as they are to Jesus, are going to witness something that is going to change their life, literally transform their life. And they are going to become some of the most powerful ministers and missionaries to advance the kingdom of God. And that is one thing I am learning about discipleship. That if we take someone with us, often we will find that the person we take with us or the people we take with us, that small group of people that we pour everything we have into, they will be some of the, make some of the most perplexing decisions. It's like raising a little child in the faith, right? Or raising a little child at all. Raising someone in the faith. Paul writes to the church in Galatia that he started. And he says, I am so perplexed because I thought you were further along and you keep going back to your old way. And it's so frustrating. But then he goes on to praise them for the difference they make for the gospel. Peter, James, and John, whether they were Jesus' favorites or they were the most perplexing of the 12 disciples, what they witness when Jesus takes them with him will change the trajectory of their life. And we are here today in large part because of the way they saw God's glory unfold before their eyes. So the next application, so like what does your prayer life look like? If that's where the whole thing starts and ends, like Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, but he took someone with him. Like who are you taking with you to make disciples? I remember when we first launched Eastside, Chris was like, our discipleship strategy, we're laying out all these strategies, and she's like, our discipleship strategy is going to be really simple. It's going to be take someone with you. I was like, no, there's got to be more complex than that. So, like, I got the Bible out, and I started looking. I was like, how do you make disciples? Like, surely there's got to be something in here. And everywhere I look, the answer is just take someone with you. Like, Paul would say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Whether it's someone that you go to church with or someone you sit in the cubicle next to or someone you're studying with, like, who are you taking with you? doesn't mean, like, you don't have to be perfect as Jesus was perfect, but as you learn to follow Jesus Who are you bringing with you? Who are you bringing alongside? Like, I am far from perfect, but I'm constantly looking for opportunities to bring someone with me. I was really convicted this week. I've been thinking so much about prayer and the difference that time in God's presence can make in my life. And so I uh, 
I, I spend time with God every day, and he always seems to, he's gracious enough to reveal something to me as I sit with him in his word. And so I just took my phone out. I was like, who am I going to bring with me? It's like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. The rest of the world has jobs. I'm paid to study this book for a living. I was like, I'm going to bring my community group alongside and so I took out my phone, and I just sent him a text. Carissa told me it was way too long, but all the things that God said to me in his word. And my goal, like, I'm not the most profound thought in the world, probably relatively elementary, but I thought, man, if God is speaking, man, I want to share that. Like, I want to stir, like, spur them on towards love and good works. I'm not sure that they didn't ask for it. I'm not sure they appreciated it, but I'm always looking for opportunities to take someone with me. Like, who are you taking with you as you follow Jesus? Like, if you really were to think about it. Like, do you have someone that's a step or two behind you? Are you following someone that's a step or two ahead of you? Discipleship uh, is about taking someone with us as we follow after Jesus. The story goes on in Luke chapter, that was one verse. Verse 29. Annie asked, how long are we going to be in Luke? And I I told her it was going to be several more months. And she's like, man, it seems like a long time. I was like, well, I can make it a lot longer. She's like, yeah, I know. Anyway. Verse 29, and as he was praying, powerful things happen as we pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. It's kind of fascinating because it seems like this should be the main point of the story. Like Jesus goes up on a mountain, he's praying, and as he's praying, something powerful takes place, something that we can't even fully understand. And the disciples and the the, uh, New Testament writers struggle with, like, how are we going to even describe the thing that takes place? Luke says... His face was altered. I don't know what that means. Like, were all the wrinkles that the disciples had put on his face over the first two and a half years, were they just like all of a sudden gone because, you know, God changed his face, this glorified thing? His clothes, Luke said, become dazzling white. And the word is like white like lightning, this brilliant white that you can't even look at because it's just so bright and white. Um, Matthew, in his account, uh, he says his clothes become bright like the sun. And he's just trying to describe, and Mark in his account say his clothes become whiter than anyone could bleach them. And you kind of see the intellectual difference between Matthew, Mark, or Matthew and Luke, right? Like Matthew's like, the, 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 it was so, so brilliant. It was like white like the sun. And Luke's like, yeah, it was like a bolt of lightning flashing before your eyes. Mark's like, it was like that time I was doing laundry and I put some extra Clorox and it was that bright. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the point is they try to describe what's taking place. And why we may not fully understand it, what we do know is in that moment, Jesus' glory was on display for all to see. There's a pastor named Chris Brown, and he says this. He says, his divinity, Jesus' divinity in this moment is bursting forth through his humanity. It's not the recording artist, Chris Brown. I see you chuckling in the back. That guy's probably in prison. This guy's a pastor, San Diego. The miracle is not that Peter, James, and John can see his divinity. The real miracle is that his divinity was shrouded in humanity for 33 years. The glory of God, which is literally translated the weight of God's presence. It's it's indescribable. It's something that you have to be there to understand. You have to sit with God in his presence. In the glory of God, the fullness, the undeniable presence of God is fully revealed in that moment. Peter, James, and John see it. Matt Chandler would say the glory of God is the singular splendor of God and its consequences for all mankind. Like in this moment of transfiguration, God's glory is displayed for the disciples that are there. All of God's glory demonstrated in a visible way. What an incredible and epic moment. And if that's not enough, it says, and behold, verse 30, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. 
who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appeared, these two heroes, the two heroes of the faith. And I know that 2,000 years later, when we talk about Moses and Elijah, we might think back to like Sunday school or a felt board or something like that, a story, a movie we saw growing up. It doesn't really move the needle. But for Jews in the first century, Moses and Elijah were the heroes. Like if you're a football fan, you think like Vince Lombardi or Peyton Manning. Like they are the, they are the uh, pinnacle. Uh, music maybe like Beethoven or Bach, Star Wars, George Lucas, and Mark Hamill. I definitely knew who those people were. I didn't have to ask for help with Nick on those references. But the idea is like they were the heroes. Moses represented the law of God, the word of God. Um, Elijah represented the prophets of God, the promises of God. So they are personified with the glory of Jesus revealed is the law and the prophets talking to and pointing to Jesus. And they started talking with him about his departure. The Greek word is literally translated his exodus, his death that he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. And what we see in this moment as the story unfolds is the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, pointing to the person and the work of Jesus. That everything that God had done to that point to orchestrate and ordain human history, to bring Jesus into existence, the the fullness of God in man, and going to a cross to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish on our own. I love some of the songs we sung, Christ alone, like his righteousness, because Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says this. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And in that moment, when God's glory is revealed through Jesus, just visible for the disciples to see, and Moses and Elijah appear, what is going on is something beyond our comprehension, but it's the law and the prophets, everything God's saying, this is going to happen exactly as I said it's going to happen. And you are going to be able to have a right relationship with God simply by putting your faith in this person, the person of Jesus who is transfixed, transfigured before your eyes. As all of this is unfolding, what are Peter, James, and John doing? It says, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. I, I love that. Like, I've never related more to Peter than in this moment. The glory of God is being demonstrated through Jesus, and Peter is on the sideline snoozing. Right? Like this profound moment. And and I I understand because I have slept through some pretty magnificent things in my life. Never the glory of God being demonstrated before me that I'm aware of, but I have slept through New Year's. I rang in New Year's for the first time in like 10 years just because we bought an espresso machine this year, right? I've slept through plays on Broadway in New York. I've slept through football, like national championships. As soon as I sit down, I fall asleep. And so like Peter, think about what he did. Like he hiked up a mountain. He followed Jesus, asking questions and probably saying dumb things the whole way. He gets up there. Then Jesus wants to pray. He's like, we hiked all this way to pray. And Jesus starts praying. We have no no idea how long the prayer is, but, but Peter just dozes off. James dozes off, but I know you can relate too because like I have a good vantage point up here and I see you snoozing during my sermons. Like I can tell when the head starts to nod and you sit on the front row, you start to snore. I catch on. Anyway, all of this is going on before their eyes. They wake up and they see the glory 
of Jesus. This is now Peter and those who were with him. They were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They saw the fullness of God in the two men who stood with him. And the men were parting. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. I think that's hilarious. All of this going on before their eyes. And what does Peter say? Man, Jesus, it's really good that you brought me along. Like this moment would not be that spectacular if I wasn't here with you. Like it's really good. And we look at him, we think, Peter, you are so silly. But we do the same thing all the time. Like we, we think, man, we make a God thing about us more often than we would like to admit. Nick and I were just talking about worship music the other day and looking at different songs. I'm just so grateful for the amount of prayer and uh, study that goes into the music that they use to lead us in worship because so much of worship music is about us. It's like Peter saying, Jesus, I know your glory is on display for the first time since you stepped down from heaven's right hand, but man, it is good that we are here. Like, it is good that I got invited to the party. Um, The other thing he does, he says this, he says, um, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then I love the note Luke puts on the end, not knowing what he said. It's like, have you ever said something so dumb, like as the words are coming out of your mouth, like you know it's dumb? And like you think, well, I had to say something. A good life advice, not Bible advice, just life advice, if you were to learn from Peter's example, if you think you have to say something, but you don't have anything to say, just don't, right? Like that's good marriage advice. I've learned that my wife does not need to hear every thought that comes in my head. It never works out well if I just tell her everything I think. But Peter, nonetheless, he says, man, it is good that we're here. Why don't we just build three tents? Like, this is a really good moment, Jesus. Why don't we just live in this moment? And and I think there's a temptation for all of us there. We have these powerful moments with God. And we think, man, we should just stay here forever. If we just, like, built a house, if we built a tent, we could just live in this moment. It doesn't matter, you know, how many people are here. The worship services, we gather together to make much of God. It's just so powerful. I don't know about you. I sit and listen to these songs and sing these songs of praise. And I was like, man, I just wish this could just keep going and going and going. But we weren't called to just spend time in God's presence. Like, yeah, that's important worship and making much of God, but we are also called to go make disciples. And Jesus' purpose here is to show them the glory of God so they can leave the mountain and reflect the glory of God. And Peter just wants to sit in it. And then as he was saying these things, like as he is speaking, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son. He is my chosen one. Listen to him. It's not just that Peter wanted to make tents to stay there. He wanted to make three equal tents. It was almost like he was putting the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, the heroes of his faith, on equal playing field with Jesus. And as those words, those silly words are coming out of Peter's mouth, God descends in a cloud and says, no, no, no. These aren't roommates. This is my son. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they pointed to Christ. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent. It was told to no one in those days what they had seen and heard. So what is this, like, what does this mean for us? Like, it's a really cool story. 
We've grown up with the story. You've heard the story. Maybe you've read the story. Maybe you've never heard the story. But as you've heard it for the first time, it's like, this is a pretty cool story. You have Jesus. He's traveling with the disciples, and he's telling them about the things that are about to happen. He goes up on a mountain. He's praying, and they get to hear, at least until they fall asleep. And then his glory is revealed, and Moses and Elijah, their heroes descend. They have this conversation about Jesus, and Peter puts his foot in his mouth, and the glory of God, it comes in a cloud. The, the presence of God, the weight of God descends on the mountain, affirms Jesus. Like, that is so cool. Like, has that ever happened in your life? It's never happened in mine. Like, I've been up like one or two mountains, Mount Dora and a couple other mountains, and never have I seen the glory of God descend in a cloud. Never have I seen Jesus standing right there, his face transfixed, the glowing, like blinding. But here's the thing. When they saw the glory of God, it changed the eternal trajectory of their lives and the lives of those they would bring alongside and disciple. Like something happened in that moment with those three that all of those things that Jesus had said to them, they began to sink in and they began to see them uh, as true. They began to see Jesus for who Jesus was. And what we learn is that after the departure of Jesus, after his death and his resurrection, we have been invited to experience the glory of God in a profound way as well. Here's what I mean by that. John would come down off the mountain. He would spend time with Jesus. He would later write a gospel account for himself. I guess he didn't think Luke's was good enough. And as he started his gospel, he said this in John 1.14. He says, And the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John says is, in Jesus, we see the glory of God. And if we're wondering, like, what do you mean? Like, Jesus and the person, no, no, no. Like, when you read the Word of God, the living, enduring Word of God, you can see the glory of God. You can spend time in His presence. And it may not be as bright and as shining as on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration but we can see and experience the benefits of the glory of the presence of God. When we see Jesus in his word, we see the glory of God. We might not see his face transfixed before our eyes, but we can see clearly who God is in all his glory glory as we open his word. As we read his word, we can know that these things weren't just made up. These weren't things that, you know, they just compiled and threw together. These were written by real people who were really there. At the end of his life, Peter, the apostle that was there on the mountain, putting his foot in his mouth, he would write to the church scattered abroad. He would say this. He would say, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear about some of these things that are are in the Bible, the prophecies and the promises of God and the second coming and the first coming and how all of it goes together. You think, man, this just seems too good to be true. And Peter's like, no, no, no. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Like, yeah, we were there with Jesus when he was feeding the 5,000. That was really cool. And we heard him teach. That was really cool. And we went fishing with him a few times, and that was really cool. But as Peter recalls his life, he says, man, we were there in the presence and the power of God. We saw the majesty of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. And he's recalling transfiguration. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And I love that. 
Like, I love that Peter, as he's trying to encourage the church, is like, all of these things that I've written, all of these things that I've said, these are true. Like, we were there. We saw it. If you could just lean in, you also could experience the glory of God. In the text that convicted me more than anything else, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, if you've got a note, write it down, circle in your Bible, do something, look back at this. He says, and we all. So Paul wrote this to the church. Like, this is how I know that this is also for us. Like, you didn't have to be on the Mount of Transfiguration because Paul wrote this to the church, to believers like you. You and I in the first century city of Corinth, he says this, he says, and we all, all of the believers, all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, all of those who have trusted that his righteousness could be our righteousness, all, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And what Paul says is the, the person of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he revealed his glory that for generations, Moses and the few prophets that got to be in the presence of God's glory, they would literally have to veil their face because it could not stay in the brilliance of God. We get that same glory, that same time when we spend time with God in his presence and his spirit at work in us to transform us into that glory. And I know it's a, a profound concept and I would be lying if I said I had it all figured out, but Jesus and his Holy Spirit invite us into his presence to deposit his spirit into us so that he goes to work cutting away the sin and the selfishness of life, drawing us further into his presence so the closer we get to Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. What really excites me as I think about this text is Jesus took with him three guys. These three guys would see the glory of Jesus. They would spend time in his presence and they would be so transformed that they would change the world. Like I look around and I know Eastside's a small church and um, seemingly getting smaller. So we'll work on that. But it only takes a few. It only takes a few people leaning into the presence and the power of God. And when the Holy Spirit goes to work in us and through us to transform us and then draw other people into his presence, he will write a story. He did write a story that 2,000 years later we're still talking about for his glory. Here's what we're walking away with. If you put the prayer and fasting slide up this month, we are spending a month of prayer and fasting every Wednesday in January. We're inviting you to collectively fast with us as a church. If you're able to fast from food, we encourage you to do that from sunup to sundown on Wednesday. I've been so encouraged, even in our church, just by the people who have fasted some for the first time this past Wednesday in hearing how God is beginning to reveal himself. So we're choosing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And this week, as we pray and fast together, ask God to transform us even more into his image as we spend time in his presence. As we ask him to draw people to himself through his church. One of the things that I've been seeing in my prayer time in the book of Jeremiah is that as the people of God are shaped more and more by God, others are drawn into the presence of God. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But as we pray and fast together this week, I just encourage you, just imagine, like imagine Jesus were inviting you into his presence. Like Peter, James, and John, he was saying, come with me and see my glory. Experience my presence and my power for yourself because that is exactly what he is doing when he invites us to fast and pray. And as we experience his presence and as we look on his glory, ask him to transform us as he promised in 2 Corinthians into his image and then ask him to draw people to himself through his church, that God might multiply the work he is doing here. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. 
It is only by the presence and the power of God that we are even able to gather together to declare songs of praise. Father, it almost feels impossible as we approach your words and stories like this to be able to wrap our mind around what is actually taking place here. And so just at its most simple form, we recognize that Peter, James, and John, these three disciples who perplexed you more often than not, were invited to experience the presence and the powerful power of God in such a profound way that it would change the trajectory of their life. And Father, where a few people will lean into you, you have done miraculous things. The weak have been made strong for the glory of God. And I simply pray that East Side would be known as a people who are leaning into your presence. Father, this week as we lean in, as we fast, and as we pray, as we ask for more of your presence and your power in our life, we ask that you would transform us, that your spirit would convict us as uncomfortable as that is, that he would discipline us, cut away the areas of sin and selfishness that are keeping us from the fullness of life in Christ. And then, Father, as you go to work in us and transforming us, that you would draw more people into your presence through your church. That we might be part of transforming the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. God gives a big vision for the things that you will do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.